You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This month marks three years since the pandemic shut down. Hawaii's death count is just under 1,849 uh, to be exact. Our vaccine rate sits at 78% and our positivity rate is a low 4.2%. One of our touchstones throughout the pandemic has been Kaiser Permanente's uh, chief of infectious disease doctor, Tarkin Collis. We caught up with him yesterday to reflect on this point in time. We just had a, a ceremony last week to mark the three-year sort of start of the COVID experience in Hawaii at our hospital, and it was it's actually pretty great. It was a chance to sort of recognize staff who have worked really hard for three years and also remember a bunch of patients who've passed over the last couple of years. But I would say we're in a much better state, and you know we can talk a little bit about what endemicity means, and I do think that's relevant. I think we probably are essentially in an endemic state for now. And so, yeah, how do we navigate this next phase? Some of us have tried very hard to make sure we do everything we can so we don't get sick. Um, but it is, you know, it's morphed. It's a bit more contagious, maybe not as devastating health-wise. But just looking back, I mean, I was reading something about a child that died, and that kind of touched my heart because you think, gosh, yeah, we don't hear about that for the, the very young. Yeah, I mean, I think trying to take a step back and just sort of say, where are we in the macro sense as a state and a country? You know, I think the question of what does an endemic state really mean for a virus like SARS-CoV-2, you know, the virus that causes COVID-19, as opposed to still being in a pandemic. And I think that shift from a pandemic to an endemic in our world really has to do with when a new kind of infection really settles into a community and, and the spread of that infection becomes relatively stable or manageable and reasonably predictable. You can still have highs and lows, right? We have flu and RSV as endemic viruses that clearly have spikes and occasional tragedies and seasonality to them. But the degree of morbidity and death and the disruption in our daily lives you know, are much more manageable and less chaotic once you're in an endemic state. And there really aren't set thresholds or metrics to declare something endemic. It's pretty subjective and it's almost easier to do in retrospect. Like, boy, it's been quiet for a couple of you know, months or a year or two just with little wavelets rather than big spikes. I think many experts feel that we're there already with COVID and I would agree. But the one big pause I have and something that I do keep an eye on is that we still have a relatively high number of daily deaths in the US, You know, somewhere between 300 and 500 deaths a day which is you know, pretty equivalent to the daily death toll from lung cancer in the U.S., and that's a lot lower than you know, 3,000 deaths a day, which is kind of where we were at the worst points in the last couple of years. But it's not nothing. And for an endemic virus, you know, that's a sobering death toll for sure. If you'd like, I can talk a little bit about sort of the virus we're dealing with right now, XBB, and sort of what may come down the road, if you like. Yes. I mean, so what types of variants are we seeing these days? Yeah. Well, I would say, you know, since since Omicron came onto the scene about 15 or 16 months ago in late 2021, we've really been dealing with pretty much exclusively the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of, of Omicron ever since then. So, you know, BA2 and BA4 and BA5 and BQ, and now the one that we've got in front of us is XBB 1.5. Most of these have arisen just via a crude sort of sequential mutations branching out from one big phylogenetic tree of Omicron. And, and all of those sort of viral changes allowed the virus to attain a higher level of transmissibility, as you mentioned, and, and greater immune evasiveness. And so far, this has sort of culminated now in XVB, which is, you know, the dominant subvariant in the U.S. and much of the world. Luckily, I would say, XBB and really all of the Omicron lineage um, haven't been any more dangerous for you in terms of the clinical disease they cause. And really where we are now in the COVID experience, I think, is about as good as it's been in the last three years. And I think that's really because SARS-CoV-2 as a virus has bumped up against a pretty big wall of prior immunity in the U.S. population. And that's kind of a collective immunity that has accumulated from vaccines and boosting and prior COVID infections and what we call hybrid immunity, which is where you've had 
both um, vaccination and, and infection, which is a particularly robust kind of immunity. And XBB you know, 1.5 was really predicted based on what we saw of it in the lab and its genetic advantages to cause potentially really nasty COVID surges of cases and deaths, and it didn't do that. And, and I think that really is because of, of population immunity. Right now, we don't really see a new worrisome subvariant that's waiting in the wings, which is great. But of course, the hope is that we stay right here with kind of SARS-CoV-2 sticking within the Omicron lineage rather than it doing another big genetic leap forward to something very new and very different, right? Different enough to be called, you know, pi, for example, the, the sort of next letter in the Greek letter nomenclature system. And that would be, you know, that's really what we're watching for. I think that's not an inevitability, but it's certainly something that could happen in the coming months or years. And there's some good reasons, you know, to worry about that as a infectious disease or, or epidemiology guy um, and to really prepare for that. And that's because SARS-CoV-2 as a virus still has a lot of genetic room to maneuver. It's evolved a lot since 2019, but it's only changed about 1% of its genome. And there's a lot of fertile ground for continued viral evolution when you have a worldwide infection and uh, when you have a virus that's proven to hop pretty adeptly between species, SARS-CoV-2 is, you know, can infect up to maybe 30-odd animal species, which prevents the virus with a lot of opportunities. I was reading in the headlines that I think New York was seeing it in rats. Yeah, I mean, it's been described in, in any number of animals, and that presents really a chance for the virus to, to evolve and mutate in ways that are, that are much more difficult to predict. We've also been concerned about the potential of viruses like this to evolve within immunocompromised folks. We have a lot of those worldwide. And when you get a, a chronic COVID infection, it sometimes occurs in these guys with weakened immune systems. They can serve as kind of incubators for viral evolution through no fault of their own. So I think the key is, you know, these are really reasons for us to stay vigilant and to do the things that, you know, that we kind of have to do to respond quickly if we do see another big jump in COVID's evolution or if another virus, right, besides besides SARS-CoV-2 pops up, which which does seem likely at some point. Um, so, you know, working on better vaccines and therapeutics, super critical, you know, investing in the public health infrastructure, super critical. And, and I think also, you know, something we don't talk about much, um, but as a scientific and public health community, I think we have to look really critically at sort of communication lessons and work to rebuild a lot of the trust in governments and vaccines that was lost in the pandemic in some folks. So that's all going to take a lot of effort and, and money, I think, but, but they're really critically important things for us to do. Well, you know, I'm still learning of people that I know that are getting COVID and some that are dealing with long COVID. What, what are you seeing with long COVID? Yeah, <laughs> long COVID. We have a clinic dedicated to help folks with long COVID. It's a very busy clinic. It's a real demand out there. I think there's a lot of new, interesting research on the long COVID front. There's a lot of work trying to understand what causes long COVID. There's a couple of really interesting big series kicking around out there. Is it immune mediated? You know, does the virus persist in different reservoirs within the body? Is it due to blood vessel and, and blood clotting abnormalities in our small blood vessels? Um, is there dysfunctional neurologic signaling? So there's a lot of work trying to understand what causes long COVID and there, there probably are different causes that have different phenotypes, different physical manifestations. But until we understand those, then the treatments, you know, we, we really can't direct treatments all that well towards long COVID until we understand what causes it. I think separate from long COVID as kind of a symptom complex, there's also a lot of work looking to understand what looks like an increase in the risks in the general population of strokes and heart attacks and diabetes and kidney dysfunction after recovery from COVID-19, um, you know, and these risks really from a couple different studies, both in the U.S. and in Korea, really do appear to increase for at least a year after recovery from COVID. So we are starting to get at least a handle on some things that seem to prevent long COVID. Being vaccinated seems to offer some protection the magnitude of that protection varies between studies. It might be 15%, it might be 50%. There's an intriguing VA study that suggested that being treated with Paxlovid, the drug that we use mostly, as you know, to, to treat people 
with acute COVID to prevent them from getting very sick. There is one study that suggested maybe a 26% decrease in reduction of long COVID as well, another reason to potentially take Paxlovid. Well, one thing um, I'm hearing from folks who are uh, recovering from COVID is they're, they're very disheartened because, you know, maybe they were very athletic before and they're like, oh my gosh, I, I can't, I'm not bouncing back. And they're depressed, you know, because they can't run as far or it's just very discouraging. Yeah, I think that's a real, you know, that sort of reflects it in a way is that most of the of the work going into long code at this point has been around understanding it and how to prevent it. But our, we really don't have an established treatment yet for long COVID, which is incredibly frustrating for doctors and, and patients alike. We really have very little to offer patients other than depending on, you know, the symptom complex. There are some sort of symptomatic-based treatments that are, that are somewhat successful, but as a real sort of overarching treatment, it's going to be the big clinical trials that are rolling out, hopefully in the next year to several years, that are going to help define how to actually really resolve this thing. You know, I would say in the infectious disease world, you know, it's not unique in one respect, which is many infections that we know about do cause sort of post-infectious symptom complexes that can be really difficult and everything from, you know, chronic fatigue syndrome, myalgic encephalomyelitis is the other term you'll hear for that, to all manner of post-polio syndromes and, and um, stuff that happens after chikungunya and Ebola. And, and there are many infections that leave really difficult residua long after the infection is gone. And unfortunately, long COVID joins a long list of other mm-hmm. tricky post-infectious syndromes. The hope is that we understand this one better because there's so much research and money being put into it and that we can actually apply those to some other things that we also see in my world as well. Uh, how are we doing on staffing? Because, you know, you know we're still hearing that the, the counts are up, the census uh, is still up for other things, not just COVID, but, you know, how's Kaiser dealing with, you know, because I think we've got shortages of, what, respiratory therapists, and we've had, like you said, pneumonia and RSV and all this other stuff that's messing with people. Yeah, I think one thing that we've certainly experienced as a hospital community is that although the COVID numbers are much lower than they were during, you know, Omicron or, or, or the early parts of Omicron or the Delta wave, that the overall hospital census remains really high with lots of other things. And staffing continues to be a challenge at lots of hospitals and, and, and the acuity of the folks that are hospitalized continues to increase and, and you can actually, you know, you can feel that when you work in the hospital as I do. My wife's a hospitalist and and I see it um, day to day, but we can also measure that and Hilton Rathel and, and the Hospital Association of Hawaii has been pretty clearly documenting that there's both more people and, and sicker folks in the hospital and our capacity is pretty, you know, it's limited as a state. We're yeah. not building new hospitals, so it's a tricky time. A tricky time, that it is. We were hearing from Dr. Tarkin Collis, Infectious Disease Chief at Kaiser Permanente Hawaii. He was reflecting on our COVID-19 experience moving from pandemic to endemic. Support for HPR comes from Green Building Hawaii, providing energy and sustainability consulting services throughout the islands, featuring LEED certification services for residential and commercial building projects. Learn more at greenbuildinghawaii.com. A year and a half into the we are so done with the pandemic spending bump, we are still swiping those cards. We went to Italy for two weeks last summer. We went on a nine-night cruise, and then we did an 11-night cruise. (laughs) I'm Kai Rizdal, making up for lost spending next time on Marketplace. Beginning this evening at 6, following All Things Considered. Governor Josh Green is marking his first 100 days in office. He may have sailed into the top job, but... Some of his cabinet appointments are navigating through some choppy waters. It's take two for the Department of Hawaiian Homelands. HBR reporter Ku Vahirishi joins us this morning. Hi. Good morning, Catherine. Affordable housing developer Kali Watson, the second pick for Governor Josh Green to head the State Department of Hawaiian Homelands. Uh, after, as you mentioned, lawmakers rejected Green's first pick to run DHHL, former Honolulu City Councilman Ikaika Anderson. 
Um, and the Watson will be before the Senate Hawaiian Affairs Committee today at 1 p.m. And the committee says it's expecting the same amount of public testimony and engagement for today's hearing as they did earlier this session when the committee voted 4-1 to one against uh, Anderson. Much of the pushback there uh, came from a sort of uh, uncertainty over the spending plan that Anderson would be using for this $600 million that the legislature had appropriated to DHHL that needs a portion of which needs to be spent by uh, the end of this uh, fiscal year. And so Kali Watson says uh, he plans to see through the current DHHL spending plan, no changes, um, but maybe adding on things later down the road. And that's kind of calmed, I think, lawmakers' concerns. Uh, He's getting a lot of praise from those in the housing industry. Uh, For those who might not know, Watson uh, did head a DHHL back in the mid-90s for three years under Cayetano. And after that, spent about the last 20, 25 years in affordable housing development with his nonprofit Hawaiian Community Development Board. They've done about 14 affordable housing projects statewide. Uh, Some may be familiar with Hale uh, Makana Onanakuli and Hale Makana Oma'ili there on the west side. A lot of it working with uh, low-income and Native Hawaiian uh, ohana. And so the housing industry is saying, you know, we got someone who understands how hard it is to do affordable housing, uh, but also can navigate DHHL. Uh, Jeff Gilbreth, executive director of Hawaii Community Lending, who has worked with HCDB in helping them qualify families for home mortgages at some of their affordable housing projects, uh, says, you know, this is uh, exactly what the department needs right now. You know, I recognize that the colleagues also always pushed uh, for innovation and creativity. And, you know, not only did we help with our organization's help with the Nanakuli project, but we also were uh, helping families with the rent with option to purchase property that was done in Hualima Lima and Kapolei on the homestead. And it was the first project of its kind in Hawaii. And I think that's the kind of creativity and innovation and leadership that the the department could really use at this time, especially as we see the the $600 million in funding now uh, in their hands. You can see, yeah, he has experience. Uh, He knows the the pitfalls. He knows what it's like and a a lot more depth than maybe Ike Anderson had, you know, I think so, and I think that's what lawmakers uh, will be trying to get through today during uh, the hearing. There is, you know, Watson's potential return to DHHL is raising some concerns, at least in the Native Hawaiian community, over possible conflicts of interest, right, and and whether those on the wait list will truly benefit uh, from this experience that he's bringing to the table. So. Uh, Eva Beach Senator Kurt Favela laid out some of his concerns at a press conference Wednesday, uh, yesterday morning, where he shared more than 400, I brought this for you, 400 yes, pages of <laughs> information, uh, documents that he's received from the uh, DHHL on various land dispositions, nothing uh, red flagged necessarily in there. There is an instance of... Um, Uh, Kali Watson not wanting to pay uh, back rent on something to DHHL, but more than $100,000 worth, going back and forth, and then finally after being nominated, having written that check. uh, So that was something that he flagged. But also this Nanakuli Village project, which included uh, housing for uh, those who may not be on the wait list, and that was uh, an issue for Favela. Nanakuli Village is a disgrace to our 50 percenters. They use land that could have built 50% Hawaiian home land, Hawaiian home houses, for rentals, yeah, for 14, he has it in there too, 14, he brags about it. There's only 14 non-Hawaiians in the rental, but how much non-50 percenters is in there? That's the question. Because the guys can be renting them, and they might have Hawaiian, but they're not 50%. But then why are we doing these projects? Why are we continuing to let the same person continue to do these projects? So I'd say that's characteristic of some of the concern, you know, how much are we going to be building for uh, Native Hawaiians and those on the wait list? Rentals, also another issue, uh, not going to impact uh, those on the wait list, but may put Native Hawaiians into affordable housing. And these are all options that Watson's been um, sort of circulating as he goes through this nomination process. Yeah, and and I, I can see the concerns about potential conflicts, right? 
Right. You've been in the industry for so long. You know everyone involved. Is he going to want to um, sort of uh, give projects to his friends? These are all questions I think we will be hearing from lawmakers on today as uh, he goes through the confirmation process. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you, Kuvehi. That was HPR's Kuvehi Hirishi, who will be keeping an eye on this afternoon's confirmation hearing for DHHL appointee Kali Watson. Look for updates on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Our reality check today with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat looks at a water issue that's emerged on the Garden Isle. Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair joins us today. Good morning, Chad. Good morning. Happy Thursday to you, Kathy. Happy Thursday, and it's almost St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> Just about, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the story today is about water wars on Kauai. Right. That's what we actually said in the headlines, uh, and it, I think it is accurate. This is Brittany's story, of course, and she's over there on Kauai. Happy to cover for her today. This involves a, a proposed renewable energy project. It's it's uh, to be in West Kauai, and it's described really as a first of its kind in the world. If it comes to fruition, they say it could supply one quarter, one quarter of all the island's power needs. That's the Garden Isle. But here's the thing. It involves diverting four billion, B isn't boy, four billion gallons of water a year from the Waimea River. Now, that's that's upset a lot of uh, taro farmers in the area. They're worried that even as they see demand for their staple crop for Native Hawaiians growing, this could really impact their business. Taro, as you know, Kalo requires a lot of water. It's also cultural. It's a cherished way of life. It goes back generations. And I should add, it's not just the taro farmers. It's folks that also fish for subsistence uh, from the Waimea River, from its tributaries. They're worried as well. Remember, this is a dry, arid part, the west side um, of Kauai. Right. And the project we're talking about is going to be hydroelectric, right? Hydropower. So it sounds great because it's green. It does. It is, in fact. And, and as we probably, many of us do know, Kauai is, has been a bit of a leader, really, in renewable energy. They have, of course, a, a energy co-op, KIUC, over there on the islands. And, and I think the figure right now is at least 60% of the island is being um, fueled, if you will. Maybe that's the wrong word. But their energy is being provided by renewable sources, not fossil fuels, about 40% or so, whatever the, the latest numbers are. The goal for Kauai is actually ahead of the state, which, uh, as you we all know, I think has a 2045 mandate for renewable energy, 100%. But Kauai is looking at 2033. That's just 10 years away. And I should say, you have to, it's a hydro-powered, it, it is, but it's actually described, I'm actually going to read how Brittany describes it, an integrated pumped storage hydropower solar and battery project. So it, it has a lot of elements involved, but again, relies on uh, diverting water from the Waimea River. Right. But you you got to have buy-in from the community. You know, we've seen lots of other projects in other places, like with the uh, wind turbines, right? Green energy, but mm, the community needs time to process, you know, what does this mean? How does it affect us? Right. And this, you know, where the Waimea River meets the, the ocean there is not too far from Keikaha. And of course, the sugar plant there closed uh, back in 2000. There's been problems with the plantation era, also diverting a lot of water. They did finally settle on a, a watershed agreement, I think, back in 2017, limiting how much of that water can be diverted. But, you know, this is um, not only does it have to have community buy-in, it's going to have to survive a legal challenge. There is a lawsuit filed against the Department of Land and Natural Resources. The former director, Suzanne Case, who, you know, left with the EGA administration, but still the lawsuit stands. It's coming from Earth Justice, uh, and, and they're basically arguing that the uh, environmental assessment in EA was not sufficient. They want the, the more uh, rigid, more thorough examination in, e, in EIS, right, an environmental impact statement. Uh, they're particularly worried uh, about the... Um, you know, disclosing more cultural and environmental impacts of this project should go through. We should say DLNR uh, declined to comment on pending uh, litigation. Right. Well, you've got this situation, uh, though, where, yeah, not everybody's happy and they're going to the courts to get relief. 
Right. In the meantime, we should say the, the counter-argument is not only will uh, Kauai be able to move towards its renewable energy goal, should this plant go through, but they're also going to help improve access to electricity. They're going to upgrade their roads. They actually say that if this project comes and, and is intact, will actually help agriculture. You're going to be able to farm on dormant ag land. So, you know, there are pros and cons. But quickly, here's another counter-argument. The critics say, look, they really don't actually have a plan here, a comprehensive plan for farmers. So a very big, complicated, detailed story that Brittany wrote in such a way that even I could understand it, Catherine. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah it is tricky, water diversion, uh, particularly here in Hawaii. But thank you, Chad. Sure. That was Honolulu Civil Beat editor Chad Blair. To read Brittany Light's full story, head to civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Kumu Kahua Theater. Lois Ann Yamanaka's Wild Meat and the Bully Burgers examines the beautiful and not-so-beautiful realities of growing up in Hawaii. Opens March 23rd, kumukahua.org. On the next Fresh Air, we talk about the new Tennessee anti-drag law with drag queen Bella Duball, the show director and host at the largest drag club in Memphis. The club has nighttime performances for adults, and brunches for families, including children. The new law would make it difficult for drag clubs to stay in business, and drag queens could be sent to jail. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for HPR comes from Hakawone, committed to building a neighborhood in Kaka'ako Makai where all are welcome, offering keiki and kupuna care, and including a cultural center, farmers markets, and housing options. Hakawone.com. Dress for Success is a program that helps outfit women with business attire for free. It has over 150 branches around the world. Uh, Hawaii's Dress for Success program is one of only four in the nation that is housed in a a YWCA, the Young Women's Christian Association. The conversation Stephanie Hahn takes a look at the Hawaii chapter in the Hawaii Capital Historic District. This year, the Dress for Success Honolulu branch celebrates its 20th anniversary. Its purpose is to provide business or industry clothing for women, and the scope of the program continues to grow. Hawaii's YWCA, Young Women's Christian Association, was founded in 1900. By 1914, Queen Lilioa Kalani was a member. By 1927, the Richard Street Building, designed by Julia Morgan, best known for her work on the Hearst Castle, opened its doors. I spoke with several women from the YWCA about the program's benefits, including Stephanie Hamano, Director of Economic Advancement. Once women come and they receive any service from us, they're now a part of uh, our large database of support. Um, So they now get invitations to all of the events that we have, supportive networking things, you know, classes, seminars, and things going forth. And unless they want to get off that list, they are actually um, for life, you know, a member and a, a part of our family. So that really is one of the very important things about Dress for Success. We commit to being a part of the continuum of their employment journey. For most of the other types of job and employment support services, you can maintain on a person's or an organization's caseload for a certain amount of time. But after that, at some point, your case ends, you know, whether it be because you found work or you've been employed for a certain amount of time. But this is where we pick up. We are here for the long term. You know, people can come back anytime. We all change jobs, right? At different points. Right, in our and and it, so it sounds like what this also is is about joining a community. Yes, a community that maybe can uplift each other. Women can express their ambitions. Yes and find support from other women. That is exactly what it is. So we like to look at it like this is basically a network of support. So once they come in, you know, this is another layer of people around them that are gonna be able to support them with different types of resources. Everybody's employment journey kind of ebbs and flows, you know, and if you may be in a job for five years and decide for whatever reason you're gonna change industry, 
how do you develop a resume based on you know your relevant job experience during covid we had women that had been in the same job for 20 years and haven't had to do a resume forever because you would never have thought you got to laid off right you know so it was very eye-opening for us in terms of what kind of supports were really needed in the community and is there a typical profile of a person who's using Dress for Success? You know, there actually isn't. We probably had an average age of about 40 years old, but really it runs gamut. We're actually even serving now young women that are still in high school. And it's been wonderful because the whole idea behind Dress for Success is it's about confidence building. And you can never be too young to start that. And so what we've been doing is we've been working with other community organizations that are working with youth, some of which are at risk or may be having a good chance of going directly to the work world upon graduation. So we're working with those youth to bring them in, to provide some job readiness services, and to do some personal styling, professional etiquette, things like that. We don't turn anyone away. So it could run the gamut from people that are being served by other organizations or others that find us you know, on the web and just are really in need of some support. I have to ask you, so based on your experience here, why do women need this confidence building. What is the situation mm -hmm. that leads women to not be confident? We often talk about how education has come a long way, mm -hmm. women have come a long way, but here you are telling me we still need to work on building a woman's confidence level. Why? That's a great question. And really, you know, when I take a step back and I look at it, the, the fact of the matter, you know, is that most women or most of us don't have the luxury of staying at the same job your entire career and so there's going to be times when you're going through these different transitions and so the idea is that if there's a place that you can come for support along the way and it doesn't matter that you're not on our caseload or anything like that it's always been a place where women can come and can feel safe they can feel like they can get support that's great. So, oh my God, I've Dresses. never seen so many pairs of black, black pants. pants. My, well, the thing is, I confess, I own like four pairs of black pants. So I'm looking at this. Well, thinking, you know, oh my part God. of the reason we've kind of moved toward this color is because, well, there's just not enough space in the whole entire facility to provide every kind of color and style and everything, right? So we thought, okay, if at least the bottoms, you know, are a particular standard color, we can have variety, right? In the other separates, we have dresses that are different colors. Shoes, so all shoes. kinds of shoes. Oh my goodness. All like types of shoes. different kind of shoe. And you know, we, um, when I was speaking about the employment stylings that we do when people are already employed, many of the women come back and they say like, hey, I got a job in food service and they're requiring that I need, you know, like a black non-skid shoe. Right. So we also have a backstock of different types of industry shoes. A lot of our clothing is actually brand new with tags. Our, our ultimate goal of helping women become economically and financially independent can that can start you know somewhere but it's really hard I mean most of them are starting at jobs that are you know paying 15 16 dollars an hour which is great but it's not enough right so that's why the idea is that if we can at least take one part of that stressor off and be able to provide clothing so they can show up to work feel good about how they look it's a good start you know right. so wallets wow, here's the handbag bags yes oh, we have all kinds of very all nice different handbags. types of colors Yes. and styles. We also provide underwear. Underwear is also very, very expensive. Oh my gosh, we're on as a fortune. Exactly. I mean, let's be real. Yes. And so, of course, you know, when we get donations of underwear, we, it has to be brand new tags, but it fills a, really a need that you, most people don't even think about. When I first came here, I was like, I didn't even think about bras or panties. But the fact of the matter is when you, money is tight and you have to spend 30 to $40 on one bra, it's, that's going to be a barrier. So we help provide some undergarments. Wow. So when they come in and they're looking to prepare for interviews, we like to be able to give them two outfits. And then once they land their job, we tell them to come back and we'll outfit them with a, another week's worth of clothes. The YWCA's mission is to eliminate racism and empower women, a mission important to its employees. Here's Denise Kitchen, Senior Program Manager. 
I worked in fashion and, and retail. I have 15 years of retail management experience, and I had heard about the YWCA at Wahoo, and I really connected with the mission to eliminate racism and empower women, and I always wanted to work here. Where I'm from in Dallas, Texas, we don't have a YWCA. Um, we have the YMCA, so sacrilege almost to say that, but we don't have it, so I didn't really grow up uh, connected with it. But when I learned about it out here in Hawaii, then I was like connected to the mission, and I was like, oh, this is really cool. I like what they do. The YWCA's mission also influenced Sarah Riggs, program coordinator, in her choice to join the organization. I really resonated with the mission of this program to achieve economic advancement and economic justice for women. Finally, Asia Lynn Sabato discusses how the program helped her start her employment journey and what it will take for her to succeed in the workforce. I walked into my interview feeling really confident that I was dressed for the part, and right. they really helped me build my confidence walking in here for my internship interview. So I'm working under Representative Scott Matayoshi. He's the representative for District 49. I've been learning a lot how to manage different parts of the island and what they go through with the process of passing bills and floor session and hearings. So it's really interesting. Not sure if I want to be a politician. <laughs> that's but, great. Uh, that's <laughs> Are you the first generation of women who had to go out and get business clothes. Is this something that was familiar? Did you raid your mom's or your grandma's or your aunt's <laughs> closet? Oh yeah, that's a good question. No, actually my grandma is works for the federal government. She had to wear business clothes for most of her life. She worked at the bank previously. So she kind of gave me you know, some advice, but at the Dress for Success there was ladies who knew the styles that were in now. So it was really good to have their input. Have you recommended this Dress for Success program to anyone else? Oh my gosh, yes. Um, <laughs> I passed it out to my friends here. I wear a YWCA pin on my lanyard oh, um, wow. here at work, so I get a lot of questions. And yeah, this is, this is a program that's very overlooked, and I really think that they should include this program in a lot of universities, especially for business majors or any kind of major that requires business clothes for students who come straight out of college and, you know, they're at their first office job, they don't know how to dress, and going out there looking for clothes, you know, good quality business clothes can be a little disheartening when you look at the prices. So Dress for Success is a great starting point. So I really do promote them whenever I can. So any thoughts on the reality of working women here in Hawaii make on average about 80% of what men make. It's even oh. lower depending on your particular ethnic background. Any thoughts about being a young working woman in today's society and what you're anticipating and, and your navigation in the job world? Oh, that's a good question. You know, for this being my first professional setting, Going into this, I wasn't really sure what to expect in the way women are treated. Uh, working at the state capitol, I noticed there were some instances where I did come across that. And at first it was shocking. But I know going into the workforce, unfortunately, it is harder for women. And I'm fully prepared for that. The way that I look at it, I feel like this is just the drive for us to push even harder, mm -hmm. you know, and for us to be standouts and and for us to stand out in many areas of the business or work setting we're in. I think I'm pretty prepared to prove myself. For Women's History Month, it's important to remember that despite the gains women have made over the years, we still need programs like YWCA's Dress for Success. If you want to participate, head over to the YWCA. They will not turn anyone away. And that was HPR Stephanie Hahn sharing the story of the YWCA and its Dress for Success program, which is now in its 20th year.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. As a nonprofit statewide broadcaster, HPR is fortunate to have many accomplishments to share and many supporters to thank. We've compiled both in our latest annual report. You'll also get a transparent look at our financials and a sneak peek at what we have coming up this year. Get HPR's annual report at hawaiipublicradio.org report. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to an equitable and thriving Hawaii, supporting initiatives such as affordable housing, fresh water, and the healthy development of young children. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org. Sugarcane plantations are a significant part of Hawaii's history, and life on those plantations is often portrayed as disadvantaged or troubled. But Hawaii Island native Piper Toyama had a different experience. He grew up in Pawelo in the 1950s and 60s on land owned by the Hamakua Mill Company. He shares fond stories of that time in his new book, Family Stories from the Plantation and Beyond. The retired educator spent decades teaching at Big Island schools. He served as headmaster at Parker School in the 90s when the Conversations Russell Subiano was a student there. Toyama was most recently at Pacific Buddhist Academy on Oahu. The two sat down in our studios to talk about how the pandemic and social media provided an unexpected opportunity to become an author. If you look at some of the pictures, pictures of uh, my brothers and I in barefoot as an example, mm-hmm. you would get the idea that maybe we were disadvantaged. But if you grow up on a plantation in that closed environment, everybody's the same. So you never know if you're poor or not. So even if you were, like my father was a supervisor, so he was paid more than parents of other families. Yet I looked exactly alike. We all look exactly alike. We all dressed alike. And so you never got the idea that you were disadvantaged, that this was how we lived, and it was completely acceptable. There was no judgment, and there was no one outside of our little society to judge us and tell us that they're judging us. So in the absence of judgment, we were not disadvantaged. We thought we had everything we needed. And you had everything that really a, a young boy from that generation had. You played sports, your parents had a home, your parents had vehicles. So it was really pretty normal, pretty standard yes. growing up. We had the standard things, yeah. but how we lived was different because growing up on a plantation, you had freedom. That's the one thing I look at how kids are growing up now and, and how I grew up, and that was freedom, where you could go wherever you wanted on a plantation, whenever you wanted, and no one would know. So my parents saw me in the morning and saw me in the they, they had no idea where I went <laughs> and what I was doing. Uh-huh. But of course, what can you do? There's only sugar cane. Right. You know? so, right. so, but the access to the outdoors and the freedom to come and go, that was a different kind of a life that no longer exists. Do you think that you had such a positive upbringing on a sugar cane plantation because of where it was located, because the bad stories that I've heard are ones that, where the plantation was on Oahu or on Kauai. Do you think your plantation being on the Big Island, do you think that made a huge difference in in how your life went? I wonder about that, because the one difference between the Oahu or Maui is that on the Big Island, we're very isolated. Hilo was the largest town, and you hardly ever traveled to Hilo. We were more isolated, I think, than, say, plantations on Oahu. And I I feel that that isolation and living together at close quarters, because we lived in a camp, mm-hmm. created a kind of relationship, the society, the kind of environment where growing up is fun. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, and, and everybody got along, it, it sounded like. Yeah. yeah. So if you, 
you're growing up together, kindergarten right to ninth grade, same people, then the only way you can identify or gain any kind of status was through athletics or so if you're a good basketball player mm-hmm. or if you're good at hopscotch or marbles, that's how we judged who were on top of the heap. So it doesn't matter. Race doesn't matter. Uh-huh. That's uh-huh. for sure. It is the, the ability to do the childhood things. Yeah. In academics, yeah, you could tell the difference, but the abilities of the different groups were equal. So you had very, very good <laughs> Japanese students and you had very smart Filipino students. <laughs> so it came down to to ability. Ability, yes. Yeah. It was t- yeah. a total meritocracy. Yeah. Where did you feel you fell into that meritocracy? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I was not a good athlete. I was a very bad athlete, and I was very bad at playing marbles. I was very bad at playing pogs. <laughs> so what I could do really well is talk. I I kid you not from a very early age talking was a very natural thing for me to do so you run for student body office you make speech I joined a 4-H club I did speeches there and right through high school (laughs) I was really really good at talking after you graduated from high school and you graduated from Honoka High School right you went to college on the East Coast. What was that experience like going from plantation life on a small island to college life on the East Coast? It was an extraordinary experience. And the reason is that everything took me by surprise. Because if you live in a plantation, you don't know people who travel. You don't know people who lived on the mainland and who experience winter And so I had no one to talk to and explain to me what to expect. So the only thing I knew is whatever I read in books and whatever I saw on TV. So experiencing for the first time just blew my mind. I'll give you an example of how isolated we were and how our understanding of the world. I was 18 years old, and yet I only knew that people who lived in two-star homes were rich and powerful mm-hmm. because the only people who lived in star homes were the managers of the plantation. No other home had two stories. And it's like that with every other plantation. So two-story homes was very significant to me. I go to the mainland and I see two-story homes. Everybody has two-story <laughs> homes. And the first thought came to me said, what a wonderful country to have so many rich people. Mm-hmm. So something as simple as that no one explained to me. <laughs> and then after college, you came back to Hawaii, you came back to the Big Island mm-hmm. with your wife, you started a family, you were a high school teacher for many years before teaching at Hawaii Community College in Hilo. And then you got hired as the headmaster at Parker School when I was there. Yes. And then you became the headmaster of Pacific Buddhist Academy. After that post, that's when you retired and you're currently retired, yeah. right? So. Did you, at any time in all those years of being a a really good speaker, (laughs) of being a teacher, of being in academics, was there a point in that whole timeline where you thought, I think I'm going to write a book? It did occur to me, but I put it out of my mind for this reason. I said, my life isn't interesting. There's nothing I've experienced anybody would want to know about. And books were being written about the Niseis and the Iseis and their struggles. And I said, I'm a sunset. I didn't struggle. I enjoyed life. I, can't, I cannot write a book about enjoying life. Nobody's going to read it. And so I put it out of my mind. And then the pandemic happens. Yeah. And the story I hear is that a Facebook page is created during the pandemic yes. for people that grew up on, on the plantation. Yes. And that was kind of the genesis of this book. Can you tell that story? Remember, my greatest strength was talking. And so over the years, I talked story. I told stories, stories, many stories. And so when the Facebook page was created, what I realized is that the people who are part of the group were people exactly like me, you know, from the same place, same experience. 
And so all of these stories that I had, I've been telling orally, I decided I'll write it and share it with them. And the response was very positive. So I'm writing, and they're, and I said, well, this is fun. You know, it's not exactly like talking story, but I'll take it. And one story led to another story, led to another story. And I just kept writing, and the stories were very easy. Well, really easy. I told the stories a hundred times, you know. <laughs> so I was just putting in words stuff that I told many, many, many times. And I had my audience. The audience was very supportive. But I never thought that it would be a book because who would be interested except people like me, mm-hmm. like them? I'm only talking about stuff that they relate to. So that's why I never thought of putting it into collection until two people who weren't part of the plantation said, you should put it together in a book because it's interesting to people outside of the plantation. So that came as a surprise to me. And I took the next step and the next step and the next step until I... Until you were able to publish your book? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Just putting all the things yeah. together. and But I think it was realizing that maybe these stories are are interesting to people beyond the plantation experience. Yeah, I, I certainly find them interesting. There's a historical aspect that's interesting. But in general, it's just really nice, especially in this time, to read some nice, positive <laughs> stories about some nice things, you know, that that went on in the past, and and a and a loving family that had a really good experience. Where can people pick up your book? It's on Amazon. It's on Amazon. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks so much for coming in. You know, when I graduated, you told me I couldn't call you Piper until I got my master's, <laughs> and I don't have my master's. <laughs> <laughs> So thank you so much for coming in, Mr. Toyama. I really appreciated your time, and I had so much fun talking with you. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. That was author Piper Toyama, Mr. Toyama, talking about his new book, Family Stories from the Plantation and Beyond, with HBR's Russell Subiano. Toyama will be signing books at the Pacific Buddhist Academy's Artist Showcase on Thursday, April 6th, from 4 to 7 p.m. We are out of time today. Up tomorrow, we've got a Hanaho show for you. We, exper- uh, we explore Kaena Point and the efforts of many who work to preserve it. It's no wonder it holds a special place in our hearts. Have an idea for a call-in show? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something you heard? Find the Conversation Podcast on Spotify or Apple or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.